0: Well, we are in a series in John chapters 13 through 17 uh, looking at Jesus' final teaching to his disciples before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. And his, his teaching centers on what it is to be his disciple, in particular how to live in light of him when he is physically absent from his people and ruling the world at the right hand of his Father through the Spirit. So we're interested in his teaching, not simply because it's Jesus talking about um, what his disciples are to be like. I mean, that's good enough in itself, but we're doing this in light of just how hard it is to be his disciple in our own times. So whereas his disciples faced the daunting task of being the smallest of minorities, facing severe cultural Backlash, which included the very real risk of of physical violence. Our challenge is how to remain faithful when everything is telling us to pursue ourselves and our pleasure and our happiness or our comfort and not to sacrifice anything of ourselves for God, let alone for anybody else. And those are two serious ways of being tempted away from God. So it's really hard to be a disciple when the world comes against you, threatening violence and marginalization for following Jesus. And we have brothers and sisters in the world right now that are enduring that. But it's also really hard to be a a disciple when the world offers you prosperity or comfort as a better, more fulfilling treasure than Jesus. And to be sure, you know, Jesus actually faced both those challenges. With his temptation in the wilderness, Satan offered him the world right now without sacrifice and submission to God. With his final temptation, Satan asked, is God, is this people really worth all the pain and suffering I'm getting ready to put you through? I mean, clearly, you know, those those temptations are on the extreme, but at root, we face the same sorts of questions and temptations daily, daily. I mean, there are questions like, can I really trust Jesus when so much of my life is going badly and has been for a long time? Can I really trust that what Jesus offers in the life to come will actually be better than the pleasure that is before me right now? I mean, can I really live out this calling to love one another when it seems to always cost me something and not cost the other people anything? Those are all good questions and questions we face all the time. Well, John 14 starts working towards those answers. We're in chapter 14 this week, one of the most well-known and beloved passages of Scripture there is. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way you are going. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, as Freya was just playing, we were not there when Jesus was crucified. We were not there when he was laid in the tomb. We were not there when you raised him from the dead, but we believe. We believe on account of your disciples and their witness and how you have worked through them in the power of the Spirit that we, 2,000 years after these events, see them. And we believe and we want to walk in our Lord's footsteps. Thank you for the grace and the mercy we have received from him. Thank you for how much you love us and how you are patient and steadfast in your kindness to us. So we pray in this time, Lord, that this would be a good meditation on your word, that we would grow closer to you, that we would see just even a little bit more how kind and tender and how deep your love really goes. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus begins with what sounds like a trite sentence. Let not your hearts be troubled. And it, it sounds, at least to me, almost like he's saying, just get it together, y'all. Toughen up. But he's not saying that at all. Now, keep in mind, at this point, the disciples are confused, if not bewildered. They, they know one of their number is going to betray Jesus. John, in particular, knows it's Judas, but they, they don't know exactly who or what that means as, as a group. And Jesus has told them. He will soon be gone and they can't follow him, at least not yet. And they don't know what that means either. So think on it. You know, these men have, they've left everything. They've left everything to follow Jesus for three years. And I have to imagine that it appears to them as though they have either believed a lie or perhaps more so, it's like someone who has just imagine with me, you know, gone, gone all in with their life savings on a, a single hand of poker. And now as the cards are being turned over one by one, it looks like they've bet on a losing hand. They don't know how much worse it's going to get. They, they have no clue what's coming and that whatever fear and confusion they're facing in that moment, it's going to be compounded exponentially and in the coming hours and days, not in the years to come, in the coming hours and days. But Jesus knows and in the midst of his disciples, very real trouble in a trouble that, you know, we would put in modern terms as emotional and psychological and economic and political and physical. So it's hitting them on all those points. Jesus points them to himself. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's what he says. And this is not just Jesus claiming to be equal with God the Father and thus a personal statement of his divine status, though it is clearly that, like what we looked at with John 1. It's actually a recentering of his disciples back to the promises God made to Eve and Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah. Jesus is the one sent from God the Father to heal the world. He's the Christ, he's the long awaited king. As God says at Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So when everything is falling apart, look to Jesus. Trust him. He is your foundation. He is your captain. He is your hope. He is the good shepherd leading you through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not pleasant, but he knows what he's doing. Jesus then speaks of his father's house, how it has many rooms, and that he is going ahead to prepare a place for his disciples, and this is a word picture. It's a word picture, and we shouldn't think of God literally living in a big mansion anymore than we should think of God as a literal rock. No, the picture we're supposed to have is like what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the new heavens and the new earth come together. It's like where. It's like Eden where, where God dwelled with humanity and again like the tabernacle and the temple where God dwelt with his people. So the idea is that despite all the turmoil and suffering his people were going through right then and what they would face, Jesus leads them to the Father in his domain, in his realm, where they will dwell with him face to face. But don't read this as, as Jesus... You know, kind of going on ahead to, to build in addition to his father's house as if he's making special rooms. Now, what Jesus has in mind is how his death, his resurrection, and his ascension will bring his people into God's domain, removing the veil that has separated them from the holy of holies. It's why he could tell the rebel crucified next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That word paradise is the same word used to describe Eden. So in other words, today you will be with me in the presence of the Father. Now, as an aside, this passage can actually be very disconcerting for modern Christians because Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, I'm going to make all your troubles go away right now. Now, that's what we want him to say but it's not what he actually says. And one of the many false expectations people have about counseling and therapy, for example, is that it will get rid of your pain and your trauma or your sorrow as if it never happened at all. And that's an impossible, an impossible expectation. Now, Christians in turn make this assumption about God that belonging to him means whatever has happened to us will no longer affect us anymore. Or that we shouldn't have to face trouble or sorrow or trauma or depression, either now or in the future parts of our life on this earth. And it's similar to what a friend of mine who is a plastic surgeon who specializes in hand surgeries told me. He said, it doesn't matter how good he is and he's excellent. People always want to know if they will have scars from the surgery And some people get really upset that they will have scars. You see, God does not promise that we will not be wounded or that we will be without scars. I mean, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, to put it mildly, and still still bears the scars of his crucifixion for us. You know, some people assume that we will not remember our pain and suffering in the life to come. And I... I'm actually not at all convinced of that. I think we will remember, just as a woman remembers the trauma of giving birth, but we will see just how good our God is, even as the pain itself no longer touches us. You see, in the life to come, those scars and wounds will no longer hurt us or define us, but still God's grace and his faithfulness will be even more apparent to us because of them it's why we will want to wholeheartedly worship him more it's why we will see just how gracious and kind he really is and what therapy or counseling can do and i do advocate for these things what they can do in the present is attend to the wounds and help them heal now they don't heal into brand new baby-like skin they heal into scars And some of you are dealing with wounds right now and are looking at a long healing process. Some of you have scars that remind you of what happened. Sometimes you forget you have them. Sometimes they itch or they get irritated or maybe someone points them out. And sometimes the scar tissue messes with you so much so that that you have to go back and you have to deal with it again. And the reality, you see, is that all of us are in some version of triage. Some version of triage, really, in this life. We tend to view how a person's life is going by their prosperity or their circumstances, but that's all smoke. It's all smoke. Everyone's life is hard. Everyone is hiding something. Everyone has wounds. Everyone has scars. So Jesus is not telling us to make light of what happened to us, because he doesn't or to pretend it didn't happen, or to just toughen up in our our current troubles. No, he's telling us to define all of it in light of him and what he has promised to do and what he is already doing in us. So otherwise, there really is no hope. There really is no hope otherwise. I mean, otherwise we are no better than a person who beats cancer only to get hit by a bus in the parking lot of the hospital after his final treatment. So back to our text. Jesus says in verse four, and you know the way to where I'm going. And I love Thomas at this point. Thomas is speaking for all of us. And he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And like Thomas, we naturally read Jesus's statements as describing a destination, which is true, but then misunderstand Jesus as as talking about a roadmap on how to get there. And Jesus' response shows that he doesn't really have a destination in mind, as in how do you get to heaven, so much as he does God himself. His answer is telling. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, you know, to my mind, it's, it's telling. It's telling that, that one of the chief ways Christians have misunderstood the gospel is how and how they talk about it as a destination. So think about, you know, kind of the classic question of evangelism. If you were to die tonight, are you confident you would go to heaven? That's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. As Gerald Borchert argues, he says, Thomas had misinterpreted the metaphor of God's house with many rooms to be a statement of taking a journey. How do we get to heaven? How do we get to God's house? Where is it located? And it's like the question so many kids ask. If we had a big enough telescope, would we be able to see heaven from here? Gerald continues, he says, instead, Jesus was talking about the ultimate relationship of life that humans have with God. And that has implications for their eternal destiny. So think of it this way. Jesus's emphasis to the rebel on the cross is not paradise. It's with me. That's the emphasis. There's no journey to heaven. There's no secret path. It won't show up in a telescope because it's not in our material universe. It's an entirely different realm of existence. No, to get to the Father, which is really what heaven is, you go through Jesus. It's why he describes himself himself as the way, the truth, and the life, but also as the bread of life. The door, the good shepherd, and the vine, And if you think about them, those are all relational images. Consume Jesus. May he be in you. Go through Jesus. Follow after Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Eternal life is found in relationship to Jesus, not in a road map to Shangri-La. So when you quit seeing Jesus' metaphor as a way to a destination, you know, the way that the Mormons and Muslims think of the life to come, you can start to see it as walking with God. It's why John says over and over again that the way of life is to walk in the light as he is in the light. So think about how Adam and Eve related to God. How do they know God? By eating with him and walking with him. And all throughout the Bible, those who are God's friends walk with him. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he means he himself is the way. He alone can bring you to God. And therein, what he claims about this life and how it is to live, it's the truth and the only way to be human. And everything else actually makes us less than human and leads to death. That is the Bible's persistent and unpopular claim. And of course, it's an exclusive claim too. It's a claim that was deeply offensive to cultures in the ancient world where you know, they were full of gods and people were expected to respect and revere and at least halfway worship all the gods to some extent. And guess what? It's offensive now when we are expected to bless and endorse every lifestyle and value no matter what and to make an absolute claim like this is absolutely horrendous. We'll come back to this in a minute, but you know it's worth asking. How could a group of people with such an offensive message, really a message that the world takes to be arrogant and hateful, how could such a message result in such explosive growth of the church that has led to billions of people claiming Christ? Well, Jesus builds on his famous statement by saying, if you know him, Then you know the Father. If the disciples have seen Jesus in the flesh, then they have seen the same God as Moses saw on Mount Sinai. Jesus fully reveals the Father. That's what John 1 is entirely about. So the question is, does that mean it's one God showing up in in two different forms, as in one moment he's what Moses saw and another moment he's Jesus? Well, no, that's actually a heresy called, called modalism it's like when people talk about water you know as ice or snow or liquid or steam those those are all different modes of water god is not like that he's not like that no god is one god and three distinct persons the father the son and the holy spirit now hang with me hang with me i know i'm not going to get overly technical but just hang for a little bit the father and the son are one they are united and jesus will speak of the Spirit in chapter 16, just like this. Even so, they are three distinct persons. And if you try to figure out how that materially works, you've already started down the wrong path because God is not like his creation and cannot be pinned down by ontological categories of being as we know them and experience them. I think it's better to think of the Trinity in terms of relationship because that's how the Bible actually speaks about God. You know, so for example, God creates all things through his Son, the Word, the Logos, and the power of the Spirit. Go read Genesis 1. It's right there. Go read John 1. It's right there. God the Father sends his Son to redeem the world, and the Father and the Son together send forth the Spirit. We'll get into that in the weeks to come. That's why Jesus says he does not speak with his own authority, but his Father's authority. It's why the Father acknowledges His Son and says, Listen to Him. And the Spirit, in turn, does not speak with His own authority either, but speaks only with the word Jesus tells Him to speak. It's why Jesus is the truth, and the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. It's why, for example, if you hear someone say, Well, God told me, and it doesn't sound exactly like Scripture, then it isn't the spirit of truth speaking to them. God speaks to us through scripture in the power of the spirit. And that word continually points us back to Jesus. You don't need a special revelation. Jesus working through his word and the power of the spirit is more than sufficient. So in all of this, you, you get language like the father is in me and I am in the father and I will send forth the spirit of truth who will indwell you. And it's like what we saw Last week, with a beloved disciple, if you'll remember, as John was in uh, the bosom, or that is the chest uh, of Jesus, like up close and tight in him, so Jesus is in the chest of his father. That's all relationship language. So the purpose of our existence then, the goal of our salvation is not so much a destination. It's not so much to go to heaven. Rather, it's to be with God, in union with Christ through the Spirit so that we might know the Father face-to-face in a new heavens and new earth. The goal is not place. It's just not. The goal is person. You know, just as the Father has sent Jesus, so Jesus sends out his people through the power of the Spirit. That this sounds really strange to so many Christians, shows just how badly people have misunderstood what Jesus means in the first part of chapter 14, or really the gospel itself. Your future is not a mansion, it's so much better. It's to enjoy what Moses longed to enjoy and what David sang about to take in God and all his glory and wonder. The goal of your life, you know, what you are supposed to be looking forward to, the thing that, that should give you hope in the face of really hard circumstances is that you are already indwelled by the Holy Spirit in union with Christ. And this is a down payment on the life to come with the Father that Jesus has already prepared for you by his death, his resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And Jesus tells his disciples that if they're struggling to understand all this, and I get it, I just threw a ton And that's a complex, seemingly simple, but complex biblical passage. If you're struggling to get this, just look to the works Jesus did. Just look to the things he's already performed before them. Those alone should be enough to trust Jesus with our lives. I mean, so if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, he can raise you from the dead too. And he's promised to do it. So trust him. In verse 12, Jesus comes back to what we've been talking about throughout this entire series. Those who belong to Jesus will walk in his way. So if you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that's what you confess about him, then you will endeavor to walk in his ways. But then he says something that's staggering. He tells his disciples they will do even greater things than he did. What he means by that is not, Qualitative but quantitative. That is, the disciples will not do more impressive miracles or can match what Jesus has done for the world. No. It means God will bring more people to faith and grow his kingdom through them in greater numbers than he did with his own earthly ministry. And we can we can see this borne out in history. I mean, how many people came to faith from Jesus' preaching? A couple hundred? Peter had 3,000 come to faith in his first sermon at Pentecost after the Spirit had been poured out. What Jesus is talking about here is his post-resurrection, his post-ascension work and action through his people. Though Jesus' earthly ministry came to an end, you know, in a certain sense, it, it was a, a prelude to the rest of his ministry of taking back the world. See, Jesus continues to act and do incredible things through his people, through us, in the power of the Spirit. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends his people in the power of the Spirit. And as Jesus is in the bosom, as he is in the chest of the Father, so Jesus' people, like the beloved disciple, will be with him through the Spirit. It's why we can and we must pray to God In Jesus' name. It's why we have that privilege and why we do it. Now, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So, when Jesus says anything, I think we all kind of naturally. Uh, Go the Janis Joplin route. If you remember uh, her from the 1960s, you know, Oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? And the next verse is a color TV. The song is dated, I know. Or a night on the town. That's not what is in view here. Not even close. Rather, we seek God's will and his glory in the pattern of the Lord's prayer. we ask for that, he is happy to give it. So, you know, it's one thing. To cry out in our pain and our suffering to ask for healing or for needs to be met or for the strength to be faithful. Especially maybe when we're angry or frustrated and it's hard to forgive. That's why we have a pastoral prayer every week. We are called to do that. We are given the privilege to do that. But it's another thing to ask God to bless us like the world. The content of our prayer life, you see, is a window into where our treasure is. Think about that. The content of your prayer life is a window into where your treasure is, even more so if you're not praying at all. Remember, you know the shape of our temptations encourage us to look to the world for our treasure rather than Jesus. So our temptation is actually to pray like Janis Joplin, it's to search for heaven on earth instead of seeking God in His kingdom. So, you know, I think God is actually very kind when He doesn't grant what often counts for prayer among Christians in our circles. You know, there there is real wisdom in coming to God and saying, "Lord, this is what I really want. This is what I think I need. This is really what I'm, I'm kind of hoping for right now." But I, I'm not sure if this is actually good. Please do for me according to your will and help me to be pleased in your decision. But you know, more so there's real wisdom in learning to pray beyond our own wants and desires to what God wants and desires for the world. Why would Jesus teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if he didn't want us to earnestly desire the coming of his kingdom and to live like it? That tends to be the last thing we pray for if we pray it. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things, these other needs will be met because he knows you need them. Now, earlier we mentioned how offensive Jesus' exclusive claim to being the way, the truth, and the life really is. And it's, it's not just for our times, but for the first century too. I mean, how on earth when you consider that? How on earth? Did such a message catch fire? You know, I think, and I'm not alone in thinking this, that it wasn't just the message, as obviously important as the gospel message is. It was the message lived out in the community of believers. How will the world know that we belong to Jesus? How will the world see that he rules at the right hand of the Father? Well, Jesus says it's by our love for one another. And that's the word of the king, you know, not some leftist hippie communist. You know, that love was really unique in the everyday brutality of the Roman Empire. And you know what? It's really unique in our everyday, ugly, hateful, digital age too. You know, so God works in you through his son by the power of the spirit. You, you receive this, it's, it's all gift. Then you, in turn, you transmit it. You transmit it out. You live unto God wherever he has called you to be. And that shape of that calling, the shape of that calling, it's love. So, for example, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 13 and, again, Romans 12 and just kind of overlay them, they bear almost the exactly same pattern. Two different churches, very different places, same pattern. We are one body. That's a unity statement. Composed of many parts. That's a diversity statement. And the bond that holds that un- unity and diversity together is love. And if it's not love, you're going to lose the unity and you certainly will lose the diversity. And that love is, it's not a sentimental, you know, I'm a nice person and I have warm feelings for you sort of love. No, it's a, it's a self-sacrificing Love modeled on Jesus. It's like what Paul says in Philippians 4 5. He says, Let your blank be known to everyone. Let your what be known to everyone. What virtue do you expect him to say there? What should we be publicly known for? Our politics, our doctrinal purity, theological rigor our many community-enriching programs, our, our care for the poor, our beautiful buildings and institutional history, something like that. Gentleness. Gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. That's what Paul commends. It's like what Garrett Kell recently pointed out. He says, what does God want from the men of the church? To be strong, creative, Courageous, innovative, educated, strong. This is 1 Timothy 2.8. I desire that the men should pray. A church filled with desperate men devoted to humbly seeking God's face in prayer, is a church where God will be pleased. You know, if the book of Job and 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us anything, it's that, that God is not at all impressed by our well-articulated theological opinions, but he is pleased by our gentleness and kindness and patience and love. Now, does that mean we shouldn't care about doctrine? Of course we should. I mean, what have we been doing here for the last 35 minutes? But it does tell us that if our community is not characterized by love, either we have not understood our theology or our theology is wrong. You know, so for example, I once worked for a church whose, whose key phrase and this was their slogan that they, they slapped on everything, was, "Not for ourselves." And it's coming from 2 Corinthians chapter four verse five that says, "For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake." And arguably, they got the first half of that verse right. You know, I, I really? think they tried to preach Jesus and they were perpetually trying to come up with program after program to that end. What they missed was the second phrase, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Because there was nothing gentle about that place. It was a revolving door of people and that church either ran off leadership or the leadership got burned out and laughter, they got fired for a lack of what they counted as productivity. Without love, we have to ask the question, do we actually preach the gospel? Because there is nothing uglier than well-formulated doctrine that is preached without love or compassion or empathy or gentleness. And I'm convinced that you know, the church does not grow through programs. You know, programs are, as, as Ray Ortland puts it, a weak delivery system. You know, it's why I put so little stock in them and don't judge our church's health by them at all. The real work of the church is the fight for its character and for us. That fight is almost always a fight to treasure what God has promised in himself more than what the world can promise in entertainment and prosperity. And this church growth, if we're being honest, if we're being close to scripture here, that church growth begins with me as your pastor. And it flows to your leadership and then to you. That is actually the biblical pattern. So it doesn't matter how well I articulate the gospel to you. If I'm not full of love for Jesus and for you and for my family and my neighbor, then it's right, it is right to ask if I am cut out to be a pastor. I mean, how many pastors perhaps dutifully love their congregation in the most kind of stoic of good Samaritan sort of ways, but they don't actually like their people. And Jesus likes you, and so should your pastor. And you can tell when a pastor doesn't like his people, and I think the church knows it. And by the way, I really like you. Real church growth is not found in the church's prosperity of budgets or programs or attendance or size or outreach. No, real church growth is found in the pursuit of God's character as expressed in love for Him and for each other and our neighbors. And it looks like gentleness. That's what actually happened in the first century when Christianity exploded. And as much as it terrifies me to say this, again, this begins with leadership. You should expect that me, you should put this on me, and all the elders. And all the deacons, that we are actively pursuing faithfulness to Christ and sacrificial love. I mean, 1 Peter 5 says church leadership should not be domineering, but should seek to be like the great shepherd. And I think you have a right to demand that because Christ does. Now, you have a bulletin. You see the names of the church officers in the bulletin. Pray for them. Pray for them. You know, as your pastor, I I cannot... I really can't. I cannot expect this congregation to want to live with what I'm preaching here if the leadership isn't doing it first, starting with me. So I'm telling you, I'm working on this. I really am. This is hard. You know, I'm a Gen X, cynical, sarcastic kind of guy. It's hard to be gentle, but it's the best life. I'm convinced of it. And I want to change. I want to be better, and I hope you do too. Not because we're moralists, but because Jesus is that good. He's that good. And what Jesus modeled for three years for his disciples, he in turn asked them to do for his sheep. And he in turn does the same thing with us. So may we love one another, not because it's compulsory, not because it's the right thing to do, but because God has so loved us, us, us that we in turn want to love one another too. And it's hard, but it's beautiful, and it's the best life we can have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You're so good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And Lord, I pray for me, and I pray for this church, because Lord, I can be such a jerk sometimes. I can preach these things, and then turn around before the day's end, and I've just blown it all away. So, Lord, I pray for me and I pray for all of us that we would want to grow in tenderness and kindness, not mousiness, but a strength that is rooted in you, that is willing to love as you loved. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.